beating on the good times, moonlight racing from the grave. String band playing. Welcome back to Ars Politica podcast. This is Stephen Wolf. Many of you have asked, when is Ars Politica coming back? Well, it is back. Unfortunately, Thomas is not going to be kind of a co-host, at least for the near future. And that's just mutual agreement. He's very busy figuring out what he's going to do after he lost his job. And he has many leads and possibilities, but he's still sorting all of that out. And so it's best for him to kind of step back from that. I know many of you listen to this podcast because of him. And so you're left with me. And I think the dynamics be- between us was m- made the podcast what it was. But hopefully I can carry on that torch just alone as best that I can. The plan for the next few weeks is for me to cover the chapters of my book, uh, The Case for Christian Nationalism. I will go chapter by chapter through the book and mainly address critical responses to it and also maybe expand upon things that I, I guess I wish that I had expanded upon when I wrote uh, after I wrote the book and, and receiving some of the criticisms of it. Also clarifications and that kind of thing. So it'll be geared towards that for about the next, I'd say, 10 weeks or so. And then after that, what I want to do is go through the work of Paul Gottfried. Paul Gottfried is a paleoconservative. I believe he coined that term, paleoconservatism. He's written many books. He's currently the editor of Chronicles magazine. And I think it'd be worth going through his his work. So there'll be more about that as uh, we proceed uh, through the podcast. Uh, so again, thanks for thanks for listening and sticking with it. And I'm glad to be back talking, and I'll do the best I can to kind of present this Christian nationalist perspective, or what is really an American American paleoconservatism with Protestant theology. <laughs> uh, and um, so here we go. I, I want to talk about the introduction. Now, usually the introductions are not necessarily boring, but they don't have a lot to talk about because they're presenting the book. But there was a lot of a lot of the controversy about the book was in part uh, criticism of things that were in the introduction. And so I want to address some of those those issues, including the definition and why I take up the term, other issues like uh, my method that I that I employed throughout the book. And we'll just we'll cover some of those things. A lot of the reviewers focused on these, or at least they cited other people who criticized me for these things. One of the biggest criticisms has been, hey, why would you even take up this term at all, uh, given it's it's kind of a term of derision used to slander people and all of it. And I'll, I'll address that. I say first, thank you for all the people who have read the book and commented on the book and given constructive kind of feedback of the book and some praise and also helped me publicize it. I mean, not, friends, of course, publicize it. The, the ones who like the book and friends who don't like the book have also kind of publicized it in their own way. And people who really don't like me have publicized the book as well. I have to thank all those people out there who became obsessed with me for like two or three months and, and spread the message about the book. And it really became what it is. I find it fascinating that this book was reviewed by just about every evangelical outlet out there, all the major ones out there. I think with the exception of mere orthodoxy, which is interesting in itself, and I I have some theories as to why they wouldn't 
uh, wouldn't actually participate in the pile-on. But nevertheless, every other major evangelical outlet wrote uh, some kind of review of the book. And by and large, they were negative, <laughs> which is interesting in itself. I don't, I don't, I can't think of a book that was so widely negatively reviewed. I think it's the only book of its kind among like recent memory, among evangelical outlets. I mean, because plenty of book, plenty of books were reviewed by everyone. So like Carl Truman's book on the modern self, that was reviewed by everyone. And it was all positive. And other books that were widely reviewed, all positive. <clears throat> this one was all negative. Uh, and, but th that's expected. I'm not surprised that these outlets publish negative reviews. Not only would they disagree with some of the theology some and most of the conclusions, but also there's no way that, that these major outlets could publish a positive review of a book like that. It would, it would utterly damage their, their brand. It would, it would damage their role in society, which is essentially to repackage kind of regime narratives and deliver them to an evangelical audience. So, I mean, there's, so there's many reasons why they would not publish a positive review and not only just disagreement, but it would also, I think, damage the brand. But any, anyway, I, I think it's, fascinating that it was so widely negatively reviewed and it doesn't bother me at all uh, because well because of the reasons i'm going to give in response for some of these uh, these criticisms so let's just start off with the the question of why taking up why, why use the term in the first place christian nationalism well the term christian nationalism was affirmed positively in the 19th century so i've found some anglicans who used Christian nationalism, and they use it positively. Now, the word nationalism or the concept of nationalism was disputed in the 19th century. It was often kind of attached to a sort of liberalism. This is, this is one of the right-wing criticisms of nationalism, which is that nationalism is actually liberal. It's like a, it's a liberal concept that is infused with egalitarianism and it's actually bad because it's cultural homogeneity, it's uh, political absolutism in a sort of liberal totalitarian sense. And those are legitimate criticisms if, if they actually landed on my notion of nationalism. So th that is true. In fact, there is a book written by an Israeli academic. Now, I'm not talking about uh, Hazoni, um, but she, I forget her name at the moment, but she wrote a book in praise of nationalism but it was in praise of a sort of liberal version, basically that historically nationalism had these egalitarian themes and that's, and that's good. So we ought to be, you know, sort of liberal nationalists. Anyway, uh, when we get to the more the 20th century, we have some black Christian nationalists. We have some Chinese Christian nationalists. I quote them all in the book. But within the last 10 to 15 years, the term Christian nationalism, particularly, yeah, I guess it's about 15 years, the term Christian nationalism has been a term of derision used by mainly kind of activist academics to label groups of people or a group of people. Not too many people have actually adopted the label until the last two or three years. It kind of like myself and others have said, I, I like the term. We're going to affirm that term. It's good. For the most part, it's been used by sociologists 
in, in this way. They, they say there are these people out there who have this kind of constellation of beliefs. And that's, that's a unique thing that should come under a term. And this is how political science and modern, modern political science and sociology and, and other disciplines do things. It's not in itself wrong. There's this thing happening out in the world. Let's try to capture it and call it something. Now, if that's all they were doing, then, then that's fine. That would be good. But of course, they were using it as Christian nationalism because the term seemed to them to be scary because the word nationalism is scary, or at least it's scary to certain people. And that's because they can attach it to fascism and Nazism and authoritarianism and all those things. That's just, so the, the point then is not to do you know, new, neutral sociology. The point of the term Christian nationalism for the last 10 years was to label a group of people that I think is largely imaginary um, under this term that's scary, that then the regime, the American regime, can then apply it to people and say, don't be that. So whenever then someone talks about the idea of Christian politics from a conservative perspective, they'll say, oh, that's Christian nationalism. And then, and, and why would they do this? Well, because conservatives have an impulse that I think is rooted in the conservative movement going all the way back to the 1950s, that whenever they're accused of something, whenever they're accused of something, they deny it. doesn't matter what it is. You're a racist. I'm not a racist. Uh, the, the conservative impulses say, no, you're the racist or you're the fascist and all that kind of silly rhetorical moves. Same thing with Christian nationalism. I, I remember in 20, whenever, 2018, whenever I first heard the term my instinct, because I still am in parts of me, I have that impulse of the old conservative because I grew up in, in the late uh, in the 90s, early 2000s, listening to Hannity, kind of being a mainstream conservative. And to my shame, I was a George W. Bush voter and fan. My initial instinct was to say, I'm not a Christian nationalist. And then I started thinking about, wait, wait a second. <laughs> course I'm a Christian nationalist. As I thought through what that would mean to be a Christian nationalist. And so, I mean, that's one reason why I wrote the book is to say, wait, no, there is something good about uh, this term and here's why. But of course, the sociologists and the political scientists using this term, it's, it's one of these interesting things where they are, it really kind of shows that there is a sort of regime. So when the, American, when the American right talks about the regime, they're not talking about simply Joe Biden and the administrative state. We're not talking just about that. We're talking the media, academics, uh, corporations, NGOs. They all have a sort of symbiotic network, like a symbiotic relationship. So you can see this with someone like Samuel Perry and Gorski. I don't think either of them are actually stellar academics. What they, what they were able to do is they say, let's do this research that to an objective lens is kind of shoddy, but let's do this research and then we'll become the people, we'll become the academic arm of the regime with regard to this scary thing called what we're going to call Christian nationalism. So you see then when a news reporter wants to do a quote-unquote objective piece on Christian nationalism, 
they talked to Samuel Perry because he's got the credentials. He's got the PhD and he wrote these academic press books and he's the guy, he's the go-to guy and they call him Dr. Samuel Perry and uh, he teaches here and he's written this book from Oxford Press or whatever it is from, right? And so you have like this credential, this symbiotic relationship and then and they call this an objective analysis. It's, if, it's blatantly biased, it's blatantly activist, it's blatantly political, but it doesn't matter because it's part of, he's part of the regime. He's the go-to Christian nationalist, quote unquote, expert. So they'll call him Dr. Perry, an ex quote, expert in Christian nationalism. They talk to me and they might call me Dr. Wolf, or they might say Stephen Wolf, who got a PhD from LSU. They won't call me an expert in Christian nationalism. They'll call me a Christian nationalist, or they'll say someone who's written a book on Christian nationalism or whatever. So you can see how this is framed by the regime such that I am like the Christian nationalist. And, but what is he's it's Perry and Gorski. Those are the experts on Christian nationalism. It's all like how the regime justifies this so-called like knowledge production, like knowledge is produced by these certified regime experts. And then it's kind of filtered through the media to the public in certain, in a certain framed in a certain way to make Christian nationalism seem scary. That's how the regime operates. Like it's right there real time. If you follow, I mean, uh, Samuel Perry blocked me, but you can follow him with the news reports at least. You see that's precise, precisely what he does. It's blatantly biased political research. It's, if you know anything about uh, this sort of quantitative research, if you have any training in that, you'll know that it's really not that good. And some people who have ventured to show that it's not very good have, have demonstrated it to my mind. But it doesn't matter because he's a quote unquote, he's the regime's expert on Christian nationalism. Anyway, just pay attention to that. That's how, that's how knowledge production works in our current regime. It's a symbiotic relationship between like-minded people where there's quote knowledge produced that's filtered through the regime and, and comes out in to these various outlets. And it's, it's self-certifying. It's self, it's, yeah, it's self-certifying. <clears throat> anyway, so why would I, why, given all that, would I take up the term? Well, I'm very clear in the book. I'm very in, clear in the book that I do not care what Gorski or Perry, how they define it. I don't care how they define it because I'm not defending whatever they are presenting. So I'm not saying, okay, the regime says this is Christian nationalism. I'm defending that. I'm not taking up, I'm not saying this is the case for the sort of Christian nationalism that's been framed and shaped and handed to us. I say that explicitly. So whatever overlap there is between my account and their account is accidental. That's not to say I denounce what they're saying. That, that is, I'm not denouncing what the, their definition or the sort of people that they want to capture with this term Christian nationalism. I'm not distancing myself from these like uncouth people out there, even if they are real. And I suspect it's largely imaginary in their own kind of regime's mind. 
but uh but yeah i'm not i'm not denouncing them but i'm simply saying here is my account of christian nationalism and if it overlaps it's just accidental it's like incidental to what i'm doing and at the same time i'm not i make it clear that i'm not trying to defend like historical nationalism so i'm not saying here is the literature on what nationalism is historically and here's wolf defense of that nationalism okay i'm not doing that either what i'm saying what i do and what i'm very clear in the introduction when i talk about the definition is i'm saying we'll just look at the term itself christian nationalism the words that are involved in constructing and making that what does it mean in a denotive sense? Or uh, instead of talking about what sort of things does this apply to or people this apply to, and let's try to define it, let's work with the words present and go from there. And so the book in large part is me talking about what is a nation. That's chapter three. And then there's this thing called nationalism. What is the ism? What, what, what can we say about the ism connected to the word nation or national? And my point is simply to say you have a people group, and I try to define nation, but you have a you have a nation, the ism. I mean, you can say that the ism, you can define nationalism by its abuse. That's that's the problem with a lot of Christian discourse with regard to nationalism, is they define nationalism by an abuse, or they they define it like someone would define murder. So murder by definition is an unjust taking of life. It's it's bad by definition. Right, so if I were to say I'm nationalist, another guy defines nationalism in itself as bad, as in it's a nationalism is an idolatrous view of the nation. So they define what I view right off the bat, according to uh, that's bad right from the beginning. <coughs> but of course, that's that'd be question begging. That's not. I don't think it's idolatrous. But anyway, that that's how. A lot of evangelicals approach nationalism, especially the elites. They wanted to define it according, their, according to their abuse. You see this also with cultural Christianity, which I have a whole chapter on, where people define it according to its abuse or define it as bad in the definition itself. My definition of nationalism is not talking about whether it's good or bad. It's actually just a definition that could be good in application or could be bad in application. So the ism refers to the nation saying, basically collectively saying to itself, we are going to arrange ourselves for our own good. Right? Now, really, any the funny thing is that's what every nation does or ought to do, and that's what they've done throughout all of history. So my account of nationalism as definition is not located in like post-French Revolution nationalism. It's not 19th century. It's not mid 20 or early uh, 20th century. It's really just talking about nationalism. You have a nation, you have a collective sense of self, a, like a collective entity. And that collective entity says to itself, as the people say, that we're going to arrange ourselves for our good. Now, the nation could have a bad understanding of, of what is good. And so they could arrange themselves in bad ways, or they can arrange themselves for good ends and in poor and bad ways you know you could have some laws the end of some law or the purpose of, of some law might be some good but the manner in which it's enforced could be bad so uh it's not so, so you could have a good you have a, a, a bad conception of, of the end 
like a bad end or bad purpose, or it can you have the the bad the bad way that you achieve that end. Anyway, yeah, so an ism can be bad. The nationalism can be bad. But my point is the nationalism can also be good. Or of course it can be mixed. But the nationalism is simply referring to the people saying we're going to arrange ourselves for our good. And that's what, I mean, think of uh, what the, the preamble to the Constitution. They say they're going to secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity. They're talking about we the people of the United States, the nation, we the people of the United States. They established this, why? For the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. That is nationalism according to my definition. Now, you may not like that definition of nationalism. Nevertheless, that is precisely uh, how I am defining uh, nationalism. So what then is, what is Christian nationalism? So Christian nationalism is a species of nationalism. It's the only true species of nationalism. There can be pagan nationalism. There can be, I don't know, secularist nationals, I guess. But uh, Christian nationalism is means that the highest end of that nation ought to be Christian, the highest Christian end, which is eternal life in Christ. So that when the people arrange themselves as a Christian people, as a you know, as a Christian nation, they would arrange themselves for that highest end, and that highest end is eternal life. Not not neglecting and not sacrificing the you know ordinarily the the temporal secular kind of earthly things um but they would but they would order those things to the highest good so that's what christian nationalism christian nationalism is not in itself ending gay marriage ending abortion uh in putting throwing transgenders in jail now all those things might happen in a christian nationalism i mean uh, all those would happen within like a sort of christian nationalism uh, and uh, generally, it's not, not necessarily, but uh, like throwing people in jail might not be the right thing to do in every case. But uh, some things, of course, would be ended. Abortion would be ended. Gay marriage would be ended. Um, certainly transgender people wouldn't be able to teach their ideology uh, to the public. Um, but that's not the point of Christian. That's not the principal end of Christian nationalism. The principal end of Christian nationalism is ordering everything to the highest good. Okay, it's seeking the complete good of man, which is not only the good things, the temporal things of this world, but also the highest uh, good as well. So now how a, a people arrange themselves in that sense depends on their circumstances, their experiences, their demographics, all sorts of things. So for this reason, you could think of Geneva, like 16th century Geneva, even though it's a city-state more than a nation, but let's say, let's call it Christian city-statism, if you want. <clears throat> that would be a kind of Christian nationalism, given the situation uh, of, uh, of 16th century in Geneva. <clears throat> Whereas I would also say that the American founding era and the early republic and the 19th century was also Christian nationalism, even though it looked very different than, than Calvin's Geneva. Now you can debate as to which one's better, which one's worse. Uh, you can you can debate whether one's prudent and um, one actually achieved the ends that were sought. Um, uh, if, if one was wise and one was unwise, or whatever. But still, according to definition, it's still a, a sort of Christian nationalism 
because in, as I would say, argue in the 19th century, there still is a collective sense of a, like a Protestant Christian nation among the United States. And I, I try to show that in part in a, a later chapter we'll talk about another time. That is, that's a definition of, of Christian nationalism. Now, whether or not that overlaps other forms of Christian or of nationalism, that's accidental. I'm not trying to avoid anything. I'm just trying to present my version of Christian nationalism. And I think that flows from the terminology. And as I'll talk about later, it flows from the magisterial Protestant tradition. But why? What's the central? So, yeah, it's, it's a, the definition is different than the common kind of activist sociology definition. But still, is there something more? Well, I think there is something more there. I have a, another motivation for adopting the term nationalism. There is a sort of connotation to nationalism that I do want to rely and sort of rely on and harness. And that would be nationalism. It has a sort of spirit for, for national life. Emphasizing nationalism is one way, I think, to reinvigorate people, particularly Western peoples, to realize that they ought to assert and strive for and struggle for their nation. That they should recognize themselves, each kind of individual ethnicity or people group, as a people in themselves and act accordingly given their circumstances and their situation. Because I think what's happening in the West is we've become kind of dead inside. It's like an old, empty, crumbling cathedral. Like that's, that's kind of what the West has kind of become. Or better yet, I mean, or worse, it's, a, it's like a cathedral that's been turned into a, like a skate park or something like that. Or some sort of ridiculously fusionist restaurant. I could go on and on with that. But nationalism help us, helps us to kind of reinvigorate that spirit for life, this sort of struggle for life, to break us out of a sort of complacency that is leading us to our ruin. We're just not assertive. And it's been that way by design. It's been that way by design for a couple, I mean, a few decades now, especially though in the last 10 years. It's not just, I mean, Russell Moore is the kind of the key, I'd say, not key figure, but he's, he's one of the key examples of someone who's created a political theology that is designed to make you weak and for you to lose. Uh, but it, at the same time, you could, you could say the same thing about the sort of modern two-kingdom approach that you see from Van Drunen and, and especially, I'd say, Michael Horton. This theology was developed largely in what Aaron Wren has called the neutral world. And so I call it neutral world theology or neutral world political theology because it's suitable for a time where Christians could get along and get by believing in basic Christian things. And so it might have been plausible at the time to think of this purely common kingdom where Christians are not you know, overly interested in politics, though participants, but not overly assertive. That all kind of made sense. Now it's just kind of ridiculous, I think. It was bad then. It was bad theology back then. It was not a retrieval of the old two kingdoms theology, which was common in you know 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. 
it was kind of a, a neutered version of it, I guess you could say, for a neutral world. But all that theology was designed for us to, to make us weak, non-assertive, to be passive, to just kind of accept the way things are and to be trampled on and humiliated. And they think this is a Christian ethic instead of thinking in terms of civil power is ordained of God for our good. Um, instead of thinking that there are, that we ought to strive for certain goods in this world that can only be secured if we act politically um, and would kind of assert what is right in the world with strength. All that stuff was just made in a way that spirit was nullified. It was neutered by this political theology. It was a political theology designed for that purpose. Whether intentional or not, that's what it designed. It conformed us, reconciled us to an age that needed Christians to sit back. One of the biggest headaches of the regime is the evangelical voting bloc. If it weren't for the evangelical voting bloc, Republicans and conservatives, and Donald Trump also, would not be elected. So the 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 key interest of the regime and their evangel and the evangelicals who are kind of the evangelical arm of the regime, someone like Russell Moore, uh, is that their chief intent is to destroy that voting block, because that is the biggest obstacle to the regime. And is there and one feature, one way to do that is precisely to provide a theology of weakness. Uh, that will prevent Christians from voting um, in what would really be in their interest. In fact, the whole idea is that they'd vote against their interest. They'd have a sort of, you know, like they're, 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 they, would, they would think that their duty is to actually vote for their own destruction. Uh, keep moving on from, from there. Oh, the, the point being, to get back to before I got on that rant, um, the point being is that, Nationalism should kind of reinvigorate us to say we need to reassert our ideals. Now, the point is not, I already said this, but I want to say it again, because people, I, I, I sense that there's a, a tendency among people who like this idea of reinvigoration. There's a tendency to say, okay, yeah, Wolf has this extreme view of Christian nationalism. We're going to call it Christian federalism. That's what we want. And guess what it's all about? Well, it's about ending transgenderism it's about ending abortion it's a it's essentially just bringing it down to mainstream conservatism of course that's that sort of thing happens all the time where you basically have this vanillified version of some quote-unquote extreme position so i'm not surprised that's happening but i'll just say straight up that that's not my project like those other things are worthy goals but i want to have a christian nation with christian laws Christian people, Christian magistrate. And why would that be? Well, because I want us to say this land is Christian. I want us to say these public schools are Christian. I want us to say that you're going to be a civil leader over us. You better be Christian. I'm okay with like, you know, religious tests and that sort of thing. That is, that is my goal. Now you might think that's a far off goal. Uh, okay. But that's what I, I see Christian nationalism as in terms of like policy. It's not simply crush the sexual deviance. You can make, you can make, we can still fight against sexual deviancy all we want, but that is not 
the principal goal as I present it. And in fact, in the book, I don't talk about abortion. I don't talk about gay marriage. I don't talk about transgender. I mention things about that to make points about it, but I don't make that front and center. Here we go. Let's let's follow Rufo and and take him down. That's his name, right? Rufo, Chris Rufo. Anyway, it's about ordering the things to the highest good, which is eternal life. All right. So something about the definition. I, I have this longer definition in there, and uh, of of what Christian nationalism is. And one of the things I say, it's a totality of national action. Now, a lot of people, I think, didn't comment on that because they're a little confused as to what I mean by that. So let me explain a little bit what I mean by a totality of national action. What I mean is that, that even the things that are not clearly or distinctly Christian, like just your vocation, if you're a carpenter or plumber or something, all those professions, those are just basic human, you know, secular temporal sort of things. You're not, you're not like a minister of the gospel as a plumber. But my point is that if it's part of a, like a Christian nation, then then you being a good carpenter is, a, is not absolutely or in itself, but is in a relative sense also Christian because you're contributing to a Christian people who collectively are ordering themselves for not only temporal, but also eternal goods. So that's what I mean by totality. Totality means that there's a whole with parts. The parts compose a whole. The whole is greater than some of some of its parts. But in, partic in, in participating in this whole, it, that what you can ascribe to the whole can be in some way ascribed to the parts. Meaning that if it's a if if the the intent of what you do in your nation is to procure both temporal and eternal good, then even the temporal things being a part of that totality. Are in a way contributing to eternal good. Just like if you fight, if you're a soldier and you fight in defense of your country, yeah, you're fighting so that you can be politically free um, or, or safe and secure in your homes, that sort of thing. But the only way to to, to worship God without fear of someone ransacking the, the church or, or, or without being distracted by worldly concerns of being bombed or something like that. Well, you need a soldier to fight. And and so the soldier's fighting in a way, like I said, for like material things, but also as part of a the whole of the community, which includes the things that are eternal. It's kind of like uh it's it's like national war making. That's another example of a totality of national action. So there are plenty of things that like in World War II, you would maybe eat less or you do certain things that in themselves are not war. Like you're not shooting anyone. If you're back home and you're eating less because you you don't want to you don't want to eat food that could go to soldiers fighting, you're not fighting war, but you are part of this totality, this uh, of action that includes people, the principal action or the main effort, which would be the people fighting, but you are taking up in that totality by um, eating less for that overall end. So some people said, oh, he said totality. That means totalitarian. He's a, he wants co Christian totalitarianism. No, I'm not saying that at all. That's just dumb. It's just recognizing that the things that you do in a nation are connected. They're interconnected. And uh, even though in themselves, they may not, you can't ascribe something in itself uh, that, that you could ascribe to the whole of which it is a part. So again, 
Carpenter is not a distinctively Christian, but it's Christian in a relative sense because it contributes to a Christian peoplehood and then it's good overall. So anyway, enough of that. That's but that's like the formal cause. Like the, that's like the sort of thing Christian nationalism is. The next thing is the material cause, which is civil laws and social custom. I'll talk that, that means like the stuff, like the the sort of what are these the actual actions? Well, they're defined by civil laws and social custom. And I have a chapter on each. So I have a chapter on civil law and I have a chapter on social custom or cultural Christianity. And we'll get we'll talk about that when we get there. The, the efficient cause or the sort of agent acting is the Christian nation as a Christian nation, meaning it's self-conscious of itself as a Christian nation. Now I break this up into three ways. So you have like a national will that the people have a will for their good. And then you have uh, that's mediated through institutions like the civil magistracy or civil rulers, and then they act for your good. So there's more. It's there's more to it, and this is highlighted mainly in the Christian Prince chapter, which we'll get to in probably next month. And the end of it is to procure for the nation earthly and heavenly good. So it's not just earthly material good or the goods of this world, but also for the highest good. Uh, now. If someone reads the book closely, they will know that I'm not, I deny that I'm trying to, quote, immunize the eschaton. I'm not trying to bring heaven to earth. I'm not trying to eradicate nature by grace. I'm not trying to establish the kingdom of God on the, in this world. That, that is um, to um, somehow bring the eternal kingdom down to replace the temporal kingdom. None of that could be uh, ascribed to what I'm, to my argument, to my book. If, because I say repeatedly throughout the book, that's not what I'm doing because I know lazy people are going to think that. And not for, well, it'd be lazy, but also they have a good reason for that. And that's because this sort of thinking for decades has actually kind of permeated a lot of reform thinking. And like from neo-Calvinism to quote dominionism to certain versions of theonomy and reconstructionism, there is that kind of thinking. Whereas I'm approaching this from a classical two kingdoms perspective articulated broadly from Calvin, Luther, Richard Hooker, Samuel Rutherford, and many others. And of course, in the Westminster Confession. So that's the definition. And it, the definition is very abstract. And part of the reason why is that Christian nationalism in one place is, like I said earlier, is going to look very different than Christian nationalism in another place. Geneva certainly looked different. You know, 16th century Geneva looks certainly different than 19th century America. And I think what a lot of people missed overall about the book is they think a wolf is Calvinist appealing to these old guys. He wants to bring in Calvin's Geneva into America. And that part of the reason I have chapter 10 is to say, well, no, like we, I'm an American. I have an interest in America, Christian nationalism. And the principles and definition of Christian nationalism can be applied in the American context. We just have to kind of skip some of the secularization that violate those principles in the 20th century. So we have to kind of, in a way, jump back to the 19th century or, and the founding era itself. And that's, that's part of why I present that. But that's, that's for a couple months from now. So let's move on to the method, the criticism of my method. Now, the criticism of my method was very much a... It was attacking a soft target. It's like the underbelly of a tanker. <laughs> that's like that's how I like to think of it. The the soft part of the um, of the the Abrams M1 tank. 
And by soft target, I don't mean that the criticism is good. I just mean it's just easy to make. And uh, the criticism is that I don't appeal to, I don't do scriptural exegesis. In fact, I say I don't, I'm not going to do scriptural exegesis. I explicitly say that I'm going to assume the Reformed tradition. It's a soft target because regardless of whether my, my method is sound, which I think it is sound, it's very popular for Christians, especially nowadays in, in evangelical circles, to say, you know, chapter and verse. Where is that? Where is that in the Bible? And they want a sort of biblical, a strictly biblical argument for these positions. I can understand certainly the impulse for that, even though I do think that historically speaking, that demand that that was that sort of thing was not demanded as rigorously or as seriously as not seriously it, it was not demanded uh universally and in every in every case in every sort of work um prior to i'd say like the 20th century i mean there are there's a book there's a series of books uh by bartholomew Bar bartholomew keckerman who few people know nowadays uh, he was very popular and very famous in Europe in the early 17th century. He was a reformed polemist, pretty much. And he, uh, he, wrote books on, he wrote books on rhetoric, he wrote books on politics, wrote ethics, uh, economics, which would be like home economics, and of course, theology. If you look at his work on politics, economics, ethics, and... Uh, and rhetoric, you'll notice that he doesn't actually do exegesis. Let's just focus on his, his, his like it's called uh, system of political discipline uh, of the of the political discipline. And in that book, he quotes Aristotle, Plato, Cicero, Plutarch, Seneca, Augustine, and other church fathers, and uh, some recent authors for his position. Uh, he does not do much scriptural exegesis. In fact, he doesn't even appeal much to, to scripture. Now, Keckerman was thoroughly orthodox, and no one would call him a heretic, or at least among the reform camp, no one would call him a heretic. And, and so that's just one example. You can find, I, I just picked up a book by uh, Philip Melanchthon called the Commentary, A Commentary on Proverbs. What's fascinating about this book is uh, practically every point he makes, he backs up by appealing to ancient pagan authors. Every single page, look at the footnote, I'm flipping through right now, I see Cicero, uh, then, he, then he quotes uh, Virgil, and then he's quoting um, Plutarch, and so he just on and on, he's, he, yeah, he's talking about pagan mythology, uh, Milo of Croton, Croton uh, Heracles, Perseus, so, the, the the need the 20, 20th and 21st century need to ground everything in a sort of exegetical exegesis i'd say is actually pretty pretty modern now i'm not saying exegesis is bad so let me get let me get to another point here i'm not saying of course all of our theology has to come from scripture that is a you know the articulation of, of supernatural doctrine comes from scripture. So don't, don't get me wrong there. But by me assuming the reformed tradition, 
what I'm doing is saying the exegesis has already happened. They did it better than me. I don't need to repeat it. And if I did it to my satisfaction, it would make the, a book that's 500 pages, 700, 800 pages. So what did I assume? I assumed either the majority or the universal positions of the Reformed tradition, at least up into the 19th century. The 20th century is a weird time in, in Reformed theology. If that's your thing, then you may not agree with me. But I think I'm safe to assume that if I'm going to develop a Reformed Presbyterian Christian nationalism, then I can, I'm safe to assume what is essentially the majority or the universal positions of, of, uh, of that tradition. And I did. That's what I did. And to build a reformed political theory. Uh, and uh, I mean, if I were to, if I were to talk like the, the, the Protestant view, if I had to prove the Protestant view of the church, like the reformed Protestant ecclesiology, well, just look at Francis Turretin's Institutes of Linctic uh, Theology. It's, he goes on for dozens and dozens of pages, not only proving it exegetically, but also answering objections, um, solve, resolving disputes, or uh, kind of um, re refuting other people's positions, getting to the statement of the question, in order to simply say that the essence of the church is invisible. <laughs> you know, so... so I, as a reformed political theorist, am simply going to affirm the essence of the church that the, is the elect of God is invisible, is Escobar, whatever, however you want to articulate it, um, that, you know, that conclusion. I'm just going to assume that. The same thing about certain positions of reformed uh, theological anthropology, which I assume in the next chapter. Again, the received position. Now, one of the best criticisms I received, which was still a bad criticism, is uh, I, I should say the better version of that of this criticism of, of that method with regard to this. It came from Brian Matson, who said that, well, okay, but these positions are not universal. Which I replied and said, yeah, no, they are. That's what I. That was my reply. You can see my my article. You can search my name and. I think, I think the, the title of the piece is Correcting Theologians. So I basically say, no, it is universal. And the positions that I know are not universal in the tradition, I provided my own independent arguments for that. So the argument that civil government would have existed in a state of integrity or had Adam not fallen, I argue for that, knowing that Augustine and Luther denied that. I do cite Aquinas who affirmed that, as did others like Samuel Willard, a New England um, Puritan minister. But I use them for support. Basically, if you think that I have a wild view, well, okay, these other guys also had this view too. So it's not like I'm, it's an extreme position, like, you know, calm down. It's not as if I'm asserting something no one's thought of before. So I use quotes for support of my own arguments, meaning kind of like a supplemental mainly to calm people down, which still didn't calm people down. <laughs> that was the funny thing. It's like, oh, people are going to disagree with this. Hey, I'll quote like three or four guys they respect uh, or they're supposed to respect or they allegedly respect. But no, they still freak out about it. So it didn't actually, you know, didn't, didn't prevent the freak out as much as I hoped it would. Anyways, I, as a political theorist, I wanted to assume theology that's that the theologians produced within my own tradition. 
If you don't like that, if you don't agree with that tradition, if you don't like agree with my conclusions, I would just invite you to go to those sources I cite and and see their exegesis. I find it, you know, I find it um, that it demonstrates the conclusions, and I'd appeal to that. If you're Roman Catholic, I don't know, you may not agree with a lot of my premises, and that's that's fine. I mean, I, you have to start somewhere, right? If you want a rob, if you want a systematic, I mean, this is another part of like. Uh, so right after I say. Right after I talk about the method, or part of the method is that I say I have a sort of com complex uh, method. So like I say, um, I've decided to return as best I can to an older style. Um, so I say my arguments are, not, are often not simple. I try to prove my most important conclusions such that if you accept the premises, you would have to accept the conclusion by the force of logic. So assuming an articulated formulaic theology or a system of theology, it allowed me to then go from there into certain conclusions in a logical fashion. And so that's why I did that. I wanted to give a kind of a systematic account. Yeah, I mean, that is, I think that's everything I wanted to cover for the introduction. I guess I'll briefly say that this idea about mixed syllogism, this is not because I received any kind of major criticism about that. But I kind of want to amplify that if anyone's still with me. Uh, the idea of a mixed syllogism, it's actually something I, I haven't seen any writers on politics, Christian writers on politics use that, the, the use mixed syllogism, or I, I should say explicitly identify things as mixed syllogisms. In theology, a mixed syllogism is where one premise, and ordinarily the major premise, is is some sort of axiom of nature or some principle or something known by nature or reason, or at least it's a natural thing, right? And then the minor premise is something known only by faith or grace or, you know, it's adventitious to nature. It's, it's, yeah. So for example, in theology, and this is kind of a crude, simplistic way to put it, I suppose, because I'm not a theologian, on the subject of, of transubstantiation, uh, reformed theologians would say, they would affirm this axiom, which is no body can be in two places at one at one time. So my body cannot be both here and there at the same time. That's an axiom of nature. So that's a major premise. And then they say Jesus has a body. Well, if Jesus has a body, conclusion from the natural premise, that would mean that Jesus' body cannot be in two places at once, which denies transubstantiation. Now, don't attack me for getting that argument wrong, but it's a whether it's simplistic or not, that's still example of a mixed syllogism. First, major premise is known by nature. Second one's known by faith, which produces a conclusion that you could say is a sort of mixed conclusion, but primarily of faith and all that. But well, I, I used mixed syllogism in, in politics, in, in my presentation of politics. I think that is implicit in just about all like classical Protestant political works. For example, not even works, but arguments. So when Calvin, well, Calvin turned everyone appeals to these guys, but when Calvin says that the even the pagan authors knew that civil government or the civil rulers ought to protect true religion. Now, is he saying that they had some sort of divine revelation to know that? No, he's saying that that's just something that you would know by reason. 
that that's that's proper. That's a natural principle, right? So, and then and then from that he would conclude that well, then then civil rulers should privilege and support Christianity. Now that would be something called an infamy, meaning he's missing like a he's missing one premise. Um, and but I I just make that this syllogism explicit. I say all uh, that civil leaders ought to uh, ought to protect true religion. Christianity is the true religion, and therefore civil leaders ought to protect Christianity. Again, one is I'd say no by nature, and I apply I I provide three or excuse me nine arguments for that in the following uh, what chapter is that chapter four I believe, and and so and. And that's a mixed syllogism in used in Christian politics, and I'd say that's implied all over the Christian tradition. So when people say like Turretin and others, they'll cite Plato, like Plato's Laws, where it says that atheists should not be trusted and atheists should be suppressed by the by the government by civil leaders. Um, they'll cite Aristotle, who said that the civil rulers ought to look after sacred things. Uh, they'll cite Cicero, who says essentially the same thing, and other pagan, uh, you know, kind of venerated pagans who would say those those sorts of things. And so, implicit is a sort of mixed syllogism operating there. But I'm bringing so I I I just want to amplify that partly because I I think that it's really important. It's also one of the features that's it's one of those it's a, it's an example to my knowledge of something that was implicit in the tradition. And then I've made explicit. So I kind of like it in that regard. And I hope people will use it in the future. And the importance of it is, is to say it's to, in a way, I guess it's a third way, even though it is the historic way. Uh, because nowadays you either have the modern two kingdom approach where all they say is that civil politics is all about nature, uh, meaning that it's, it's, it's purely human, it's purely common, natural. It's just about natural law. This would be like the Van Druden's argument. And Michael Horton and D.G. Hart and the other guy. Um, and then on the other side, you have people who tend to overemphasize, and to my mind, the, the, a grace over nature, which would usually be your neo-Calvinists. I think along that, that th- those lines would be many theonomists, reconstructionists, so-called you know, dominionists or whatever you want. People on that side tend to over, uh, overdo the idea that grace, and I think federal visionists often have this problem too, that instead the grace kind of consumes the nature or to put differently that Christian politics flows like directly out of the gospel itself. Whereas what I'm saying, it's like a sort of third way, but is the historic way. So let's call it the first way and only way (laughs) I'm saying that Christian politics is actually the fulfillment of natural principles to say that civil government ought to protect religion is to say is that statement that natural principle is fulfilled and only fulfilled in light of grace in light of the gospel it's only fulfilled when civil government protects christianity so in this sense the natural principle is fulfilled by applying something of faith and you know as a law in civil pol- in, in civil order so i think this this, this this is advantageous for many many reasons. I'll talk about this more in later podcasts. But I think this is one of the this is this is basically what classical two kingdoms is. I mean, it, it's a it's a, it's a one feature of classical two kingdoms that you can indeed have 
things of nature or reason and things of grace or faith in a way interact such that the conclusion is both a fulfillment of Christian of natural principles while at the same time an application of grace for something that's actually of grace meaning so like if you protect the Christian church the church itself exists only because of grace but at the same time as again as i said a fulfillment of natural natural principles so we'll talk about this more later on i've been talking for about an hour and i think i'll have to end it there i i mentioned i intended to mention earlier if anyone's still here <laughs> that i have a patreon account my wife's always you should have mentioned it up front and all that i know i should have but it's if i can figure out how to do it i will post it in the show notes below but it's patreon.com slash Stephen Wolf. That's it, Stephen Wolf. Uh, Stephen with a PH and Wolf with an E. So Stephen Wolfie, don't call me that. You know, in my life, I've been called Stephen so many times. I remember in class, people used to laugh at that. So yeah, but Stephen Wolf with a PH and a Wolf, uh, an E at the end. And uh, yeah, please, if you, I, you know, I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to beg you for money, but if you want to pay the bills, I got to pay for things here. Help me pay the bills for this podcast. And I'm going to start a YouTube channel eventually once I uh, fix my appearance a bit and get a haircut. Um, you can contribute there all you want. So I'd appreciate that. And I'll develop that more. Maybe there'll be extra privileges for Patreon. Members. I don't know. I'm getting new with this. I don't know anything about this stuff. Thomas was the guy who did all the audio and and sound and program engineering and i'm just trying to catch up all this stuff so anyway thanks for listening and we'll have another episode out next week so all right bye bye